45. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Father God, um, we just ask your blessing on this reading of your word. Father, these words are so beautiful and so important to us. Be with Pastor Grant today as he um, shares with us um, from this scripture. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, have a Bible open in front of you. That would be a good thing. Open to Daniel chapter 2. We're in our series in Daniel, and the big ideas that we've been saying every week are starting to come true. It's, um, it's true that kingdoms come and go, but the kingdom of God is eternal. Guys, you, if you're looking for a nap this morning, you can go to sleep after that. That's that's the big idea, that kingdoms will come and go, but the kingdom set up by the king of heaven, Jesus himself, is eternal. Well, before I, I hop into Daniel, though, I do, you know, I do want to, I've had three people go, what's going on with your head? I was in my office memorizing the book of Lamentations in Latin, as I do, as, you know, again, it's not like I don't have it memorized in Latin, but, and, you know, there was a car crash, and 
I pulled several children out of burning metal. No, I had skin cancer, and, uh, and they took skin cancer off of me. So I'm a 50-year-old dude with no melanin. I imagine I'll have that same surgery once a year for the rest of my life. So that's what's going on with my head. I hope you enjoy it because I have to do it again in three weeks on another part. Um, so back to Daniel. <laughs> How are you feeling about the future? Yeah, that's good. I'm glad. Um, I was thinking, you know, wondering what are the what are the like societal markers of how we feel about the future. And I was I was just trying to figure that out this week, just sitting there thinking. Uh, took a break from memorizing <laughs> Lamentations in Latin. Um, uh, and um, you know, I, I remember the the movies from when I was a kid. You know, it was Back to the Future, where you go to the future and there's you know just awesome. You don't even have to tie your shoes and everything's bright and shiny and looks great. I remember Tron to this day is one of my favorite movies ever. And it's just like this, you know, world of possibilities. I remember when superhero movies were like uncomplicated, like that's the good guy. He's wearing red, white, and blue and look at him go. And it was just, you know, so simple. There were no tortured um, superheroes. Uh, I remember Star Trek, you know, what are they doing? They're boldly going where no one has gone before. And, you know, they're, they're, they're not soldiers either. They're like scientists and peacekeepers. And you're like, I think at some point when in like the mid eighties, we thought things were going to be pretty good. And what are the future movies now? It's all like hunger games where children will eat each other. You're like, ah, I don't know if that's something to be hopeful about. Every future, whether it's, you know, you're a V for Vendetta or, or Hunger Games or Book of Eli, every, like, future movie is just full of, like, you know the world's going to fall apart, right? Let's talk about what happens after that. And I'm not sure people are generally excited about the future, and I'm wondering if that's even something that can happen, not just, you know, as society, but in an individual life, you know? If you, you, you know, you start out going, I want to be a baseball player or an astronaut or something, movie star, and then... You know, somewhere along the way, you're just like, I really hope we don't go bankrupt. Like, that's, I really hope we can just kind of like survive. That's what we're trying to do. Whatever your experience is, our, our passage today continues to look at kind of this kind of crisis that happens in Nebuchadnezzar's life. If you haven't been with us, let me tell you who Nebuchadnezzar is. Nebuchadnezzar is a very extravagantly successful king of Babylon at the height of the Babylonian empire. If you've ever seen anything about the splendor of Babylon from hanging gardens to scientific discoveries to, to searching the stars like no culture before to, to political advancement, Babylon was a, an incredible society. And Nebuchadnezzar II, he's the guy. He's the one who reigns at the height of that. But he had a dream. And in this dream, he woke up terrified of the future. And I don't know if you've had a dream like that. Anybody ever stress dream about work? Yeah. Right? If you're a teacher, you've totally had the, all right, class, uh, open up to, uh, I don't know, I'm not prepared. Or if you're a server, my wife was always a, a waitress, and, and the stress dream of like just not being able to keep up. Like Nebuchadnezzar has one of those on steroids. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream where he just wakes up really worried about the future. And he hasn't told anybody. Our last couple of weeks, we've, we've seen his search for somebody who can not only interpret the dream, but he's not going to trust that they can interpret the dream until they can tell him what the dream was. And last week, we saw Daniel 
um, in a, you know, a spectacular little scene where, where Daniel, God gives Daniel not only the interpretation, but the, the context of this dream. And, and he goes, uh, and, and they find him, and he goes before Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar goes, do you know how to search dreams? And he goes, no, I don't, but there is a God in heaven. So Nebuchadnezzar today is going to be introduced to the power of the God that Daniel is talking about and is going to have to wrestle over the next couple of weeks. We're going to see his reaction to it. Over the next couple of weeks, he's going to have to go, look, I've been presented with two kingdoms, mine and God's. And I'm going to have to decide which one of those I'm going to trust. And this is a very complicated passage and we'll try to get, I know when we come to a passage like this, there might be a handful of you like, finally, we're going to argue about the end of the world. We're not really going to argue about the end of the world, but we will touch on uh, some eschatology. And I know there's others of you in the room that are like, esco, what? I don't care about that. Like, just, just tell me what this means right now, right? And we'll try to do that too. But this is a very complicated passage, but it's going to boil down to, you have two options. There is the kingdom of the world. And there's the kingdom of God. And one of them comes and goes and gets destroyed all the time. And one of them is eternal. And you're going to have to decide in your life what you build into. So here's why this dream matters to Nebuchadnezzar. What's the big deal about this dream in the first place? Verse 31 and Daniel 2, are you there? says, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. This is an incredible, I I think we call this emotional intelligence now. They used to just call it the Bible, where Daniel not only is going to interpret this dream, but he is going to give Nebuchadnezzar words to his fears. This is a really helpful thing that Daniel does to Nebuchadnezzar. Neb, you're freaked out. You want answers. Let me tell you what happened and what's so scary. What you are is afraid, and you're afraid of the future. He says, you saw, Nebuchadnezzar, you had a firsthand experience. What you saw was not just, you just didn't eat too much. I don't know what Babylonian food is. I don't know what they had that he would have eaten too much of the day before. But it wasn't just shawarma. I don't know, I have the, maybe. Um, I, uh, but you, you didn't eat just too much and, and have a weird dream. No, Nebuchadnezzar, you saw something that you need to pay attention to. And it was a great statue. Maybe your Bible says image. You know, statues, there's, the statues still don't mean nothing, if I can make use of a double negative. When you see a statue, you don't go, this doesn't mean anything. No, we still go, well, why is this here? This must have been a famous place for some reason, or this was a famous person for some reason. Did this person found something? What's important about? Statues still, if you encounter one, you still go, Yeah, I'm curious. I want to know why this is there. But in Nebuchadnezzar's day, statues, images meant a ton. They represented either kings or they represented gods. And mostly, we're going to see this over the next couple weeks, mostly if a king erected a statue, it was sort of a dual purpose. This is my personal God out of all the pantheon, out of all the gods that I believe exist. This is my patron God. This is the one that empowers me. And so as we worship this image, you're declaring how powerful I am as the king. And so Nebuchadnezzar has this image, this statue that first of all, he probably doesn't recognize. Well, who, who is this? Not only that, 
The statue, Daniel says, you saw this statue and it was mighty. And it has probably been quite a while since Nebuchadnezzar encountered something stronger than him. Nebuchadnezzar could walk in. There's no way he could go for days and days where he wasn't the absolute supreme power in the land. So for him to encounter something that is stronger than he is had to be, at the very least, disconcerting. And I wonder if you've had those moments where life is kicking along and you feel like you've got all the juice you need to make life happen. And then all of a sudden, something happens and you go, oh my gosh, I'm not the mighty one. There are scary things in the world and I don't have the ability to overpower them. I'm not smart enough, strong enough, rich enough, pretty enough, whatever it is. So I don't think that Nebuchadnezzar is necessarily just freaked out by a big statue. I think Nebuchadnezzar is freaked out because for the first time he realizes he isn't the top dog. Says not only is this statue mighty, Daniel says, but it, it had exceeding brightness. Not only was it strong, but it was glorious. You know, strength and glory, these were the things that Nebuchadnezzar believed about himself. We'll get there in a minute, but apparently Nebuchadnezzar just loved shiny things. The inside of his temples are covered in gold. That he was sort of like, you know, he was a fashionista. He enjoyed the finest, the best. He liked to present himself not only as the general who cleared out the land, who he absolutely was, but also the glorious fashion image guy, the movie star of the time, the celebrity. So he comes up against the statue. He doesn't recognize maybe this God. He doesn't know who this is a statue of, but he does recognize that it's stronger than him. Whatever this represents, he doesn't have um, the, the, the ability to defeat. And not only that, it's so beautiful. It's prettier. It's glorious. And Okay, so there's some, Peter's going to say something, you know, hundreds of years later. He's going to say, humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, and at the right time, he will elevate you. See, before God, we either humble ourselves or we get humbled. And maybe that's a next life kind of thing. I know you know people, we all know people who died in their hubris. But the testimony of the scripture is you humble yourself before God or you get humiliated before him. So this is the first time that Nebuchadnezzar encounters in a way that speaks his language. I love this. Like God totally speaks Babylonian, you know? God presents himself to Nebuchadnezzar in a way that Nebuchadnezzar goes, oh my gosh, I might not be the morning and evening sun. I might not be the top dog in the land. And he right now, and he's going to have a series of these opportunities, but he right now might have the opportunity to go, Daniel, tell me about this God. Of course, we'll see next week that he doesn't take that opportunity. But this is frightening to him. And I, there might even be some application there. When you come against something in your life, 
um, whether it's financial, whether it's relational, where, whether it's medical, whether it, there's complications in your job. When you come to the point where you learn that you are not the top dog, where there are beasts in the world that are bigger than you, that is an opportunity for you to either humble yourself before God or just continue striving in your power and you got to decide which. So let's look exactly at what Nebuchadnezzar saw. Um, from verse 32 to 35, we get this picture of the statue. There it is, obviously an artist's rendering. We have no idea what the statue actually looked like, but this is pretty good. It gives you some, some, uh, some pictures, that head of gold, the chest and body of silver, the, the waist of, of bronze and then legs of silver, or I'm sorry, of iron giving way to, um, to iron mixed with clay, at least in the feet. A few things that we, uh, if we're going to understand this right, let me pull out a few things about this statue. First of all, it's all one thing. And if you have some history as far as trying to fit this this um, uh, image of this statue into the history book, not only before Christ, but after Christ, I would like to encourage you with this. The statue is all one thing. It has a head, it has a breast, it has a waist, it has legs, but it's all the same statue. It's composite, but it's the same. We're supposed to see the parts, but not at the expense of the whole. And I'll, we'll deal with this as we go, but I think this would stand not only as a picture of succession of kingdoms. We're not only talking about Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. We're talking about the way the world governs itself. We're talking about what happens when humans are in charge of the humans. It's a system. So another thing that Daniel points out is that these are decreasing in value, or at least the different parts of the statue have different values, different weaknesses, but they also have different strengths. It's true that bronze is not gold, but bronze does have its strengths. There's, you know, the bronze age was not nothing. Also, we need to understand or we need to, to point out that, that this is sequential. So it's all one thing, but it is happening in a timeline order. One gives way to another. It makes us think about times and seasons, rise and fall of earthly kingdoms. And lastly, we need to notice that the whole thing gets destroyed at once. That's just true. Like it's just, and, and there are plenty of books who will tell you or, or who will show you how this is a, a, an unfolding thing. And, and in some ways, I think it is an unfolding thing. I'll get there. But this statue gets destroyed by this stone all at once. What stone are we talking about? Well, Nebuchadnezzar saw a statue and he also saw a stone, a rock. And the big ideas behind this rock is that, first of all, it's not cut by man-made hands. We might think of that statue as a monument to the power of mankind. Makes sense? Gold and silver are mined from the earth and purified by men. And then it looks like a man. It's, it's, it's you know, crafted. The statue's crafted to look like a human. Bronze and iron were developed into weapons, chariots. Bronze and iron are these metals that defined whole epochs of ages. The bronze, uh, you know, bronze age gives way to the iron age. 
clay can be molded by men into many useful things. Uh, one of the most important things that, that archaeologists study as they're learning about assimilation is its pottery. So this statue kind of stands as like the, the symbol of the might and power and ingenuity and how great mankind could be. We might think of it like mankind went to the moon. Yeah, we did. We'll go again if we feel like it. But this stone is the exact opposite. No human hand touched it. It's divine. Nothing is less man-made than the mountains. Also, from a human perspective, nothing is more ancient than the mountains. In fact, the mountains always meant deity. The idea of Eden was that it was a garden mountain, that it was a, a garden on top of a mountain. In fact, all the ziggurats of the ancient world are all attempts to put a garden on top of a mountain. This is how, do you remember the Tower of Babel? This is how we get to God. So you have this statue that is like the testament of like, look how great man can be. And then you have a stone that falls off a mountain touched by no human hand. Nobody carved it. Nobody chiseled it away. And it destroys not one part of the statue, but the whole thing. And we'll continue to come back to this idea because it's complicated. And part of me wants to go, all right, we don't have Wednesday night during the summer. Come on Wednesday night. We'll work out all the eschatology stuff. But that's not a Sunday morning thing. But remember that, that this rock, this ancient image of God kind of rock that has never been touched by human hands, it doesn't just attack part of the statue, but the whole thing goes from this wonderful gold head to absolute dust. It says it can be blown away by the wind. Are you starting to see, as, even as we're going, are you starting to see how this image of, look, kingdoms of man can be really great and beautiful and pretty and strong, but the kingdom of God turns it all into dust. There are two kingdoms. Which one you serve in? Which one you identify with? Who are you? The last thing to notice about this, um, this stone is that it grew to fill the whole earth. So let me give away the ending a little bit. There is a now but not yet aspect to this stone. There is an opportunity to see this stone begin its work, crush all of the, the kingdoms of man. And then there is a season of it growing to fill the whole earth. Well, so that's the dream. That's what Nebuchadnezzar saw. And as the current king of the world, you can see why this led to fear. So let's look at what it meant to Nebuchadnezzar. First of all, so it's this series of, of kingdoms. The first we have to look at is Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, this head of gold. Well, what's this mean to him? I love this. Daniel goes, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom is awesome. Your kingdom is symbolized by a golden head. It's incredible. It's rightly associated with gold. Like I said, apparently the temple of Marduk in, in Babylon was completely gold inside and out. 
The quality of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, the quality of Babylon, from the intellect to the philosophy to the science, it was the peak, the pinnacle of anything that had come before it. It's interesting, Daniel, when he is telling this to Nebuchadnezzar, he says, God gave this to you and you even have power over the birds and over the beasts and over people. The last time we heard something like that, God was saying it to Adam. God has given Nebuchadnezzar great influence, great power. Nebuchadnezzar, you need to know that your kingdom is awesome. It is incredible. But it is derivative. Do you know what I mean by derivative? All that power, all that beauty, it doesn't come from you. It comes from somewhere else. The God of heaven, whom Nebuchadnezzar is just meeting, gave all this to you. This is an important thing for, just, for us to understand in general. And I think it's easy to say it a little bit wrong. Anyone who is in power is responsible to the one where power begins. Are you with me? Like, I don't know if it means necessarily that God picks every king, that God picks every leader, that God picks every mayor and president and whatever. I don't think that's the, necessarily the, the teaching of Scripture. But I do think the teaching of Scripture is if you wield power here on earth, you need to know that you are not the source. But that all authority, all power, all glory has one source, and that is the God of heaven that Daniel is talking about. Just as a side note, we, we might remember, we talked about this in detail a couple of weeks ago, but why did God do that? Why did God give Nebuchadnezzar this power of stewardship? Why did he entrust to Nebuchadnezzar not only power over birds and beasts and whatever, but power over his people, that, that the people of Jerusalem, the, God's people had been exiled to under Nebuchadnezzar's care? Well, first we'll remember that this was a punishment for Judah. It was a result of broken covenant promises by evil. Second, we'll remember that this is a way to get Israel's attention back on God. Go and learn what it's like in Babylon so you can return to Jerusalem, a faithful people. But also, you'll remember that Isaiah said, actually, Nebuchadnezzar and the other kings of the world that, that are over the people of God... God is giving them the authority like a foster father. Nebuchadnezzar has the chance, and he has the chance right now as he has this dream, as he's learning the difference between power in, uh, in the kingdom of man and power in the kingdom of God. He has the, the chance to be a good steward, to do it God's way, to humble himself. And Nebuchadnezzar's lack of care, his rejection of that responsibility is going to cost him. And again, to the extent that you have authority, to the extent that you have power, to the extent that you have been granted stewardship of a business or people under you or a family, we need to know that we are never the source of power. We are never the source of glory. We are always stewarding that authority. And rejection of that idea will cost us. So Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom is temporary, but it's derivative. You didn't do this on your own. 
And not only is it derivative, but it's temporary. Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to die. Not only that, as wonderful and as beautiful as Babylon is, it's like three generations from now and somebody else is going to get all this stuff. Another kingdom is coming after you. And then a third. Nebuchadnezzar, you and your kingdom are great, but the greatness never came from you and it will not last. Guys, we should all look in the mirror and go, it didn't come from you and it's not going to last. Humble yourself before the king of heaven and he'll lift you up. He'll find a way to give you love and joy and peace. This is what happens when you walk close to him. But as we wield power, as we fall in love with our own greatness, and we need to know that we're in danger, it won't last. Then there are these second and third kingdoms, the silver and the bronze kingdom. The silver kingdom is, is you know, pretty clearly attached to the Medio persian Look at that, Iraq and Iran fighting for all of, all of time. Um, but the, the Persian Empire supplants the Babylonian Empire, and then there's this guy named Alexander the Great that wrecks shop over the whole region after that. And not much is said about these kingdoms, although more might be said in later chapters, but, but probably not a lot is said about even Alexander the Great and the Persian Empire, because this is not a future history lesson. This is not Nebuchadnezzar. I really want to tell you what's going to happen. Get out a chalkboard and let me give you dates and times. Rather, Nebuchadnezzar is trying to learn a lesson. Nebuchadnezzar, there's going to be another power come after you. There's going to be another one after that. This is how the human statue works. Nobody lasts forever. Don't fall in love with your kingdom. Don't fall in love with a political leader. Don't fall in love with how great your family, business, whatever. Humble. The second kingdom, we're told, will be inferior to Nebuchadnezzar's. I'm sure he liked that. And that fits with Persia. The Persian reign was longer, much longer than Babylonian's reign, than Babylon's reign. But it would be hard to argue against the fact that as far as splendor and power and might, it, it, Persia never had the, the kind of power that Nebuchadnezzar did. The third kingdom, we're told, is going to cover all of the earth. And while that's certain, certainly hyperbole, and I always want to say, like, look, we, we can kind of go, uh, wait, they only knew about this region. No, that's not true. I mean, uh, they, they knew about the Ethiopian kingdom. Solomon has interaction with kingdoms far and wide. This is some hyperbole. This is, we're talking about the symbolism of the statue. And Greece certainly conquered all the territory of Nebuchadnezzar and then much more under Alexander. Then we're told about this fourth kingdom. And this is the point where some of you go, I read a book. It's great. Awesome. Read that book again. It's great. I'm, if you want to know where I stand on, on the end time stuff, I'm on whatever side you're on. That's fine. We'll just, <laughs> we'll just do that. You're right. But we can't ignore kingdom four is here. Some people would go kingdom four and kingdom five. Some people go kingdom four and kingdom four and a half. There's a little more information about this fourth kingdom that we should associate with Rome. It's represented by uh, iron in this statue. Brutal strength. Beautiful imagery. 
of legs of iron. And you can picture just the, the Caesars just stomping through with iron feet, you know, crushing all. And they were brutal. They, they were the, by far the most brutal um, uh, kingdom to rise. Military strength was unseen. You military guys who are in the room know it. They're, they're not only strategically, but military innovation. They, they were just powerful. But it seems to be more than that even going on here. If you'll get back down into your scriptures and look at verse 41. As you saw the feet and toes. Oh, there's feet and toes. Partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And uh, as the toes of feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay." You're not going to believe this, but there are a variety of opinions on what's going on there. People have read this a lot of different ways, some pulling out a few important symbols and some making a very big deal of every sentence or every, every phrase. And I think it's, that's all great. Like, let's have a cup of coffee and work it out. What, tell me what the name of every toe, you know, that's great. But most importantly, the thing we can't miss as we're trying to figure out all the details is it seems that we are... As we are moving down the statue, we're moving down in time, that this is a progressive thing. And as we get to the feet of the statue, it's iron mixed with clay. Still has the strength of the iron, but it's brittle like clay. Verse 43 was pretty confusing, wasn't it? It said, they will mix with each other in marriage. And you go, is the clay and the iron mixing together? Is it, is it the, the people in these kingdoms that are mixing together in marriage? But the big idea is that while the Roman Empire remained strong, it was also brittle. And some have seen this fulfillment of this passage far extending the time of Christ. And this is where the details, you start breaking every one of these little sentences into great details. That the two legs, there's two legs. It's the Eastern and Western Roman Empires, clearly. There's ten toes, although it never says the word ten. And this is a federation of smaller kingdoms. You go, okay, well, 10 doesn't fit very well into any historical time. We really don't see a time where like there's 10, you know, federations in the Roman Empire or something like that. And I find it much more helpful to put the focus on this passage, certainly where Nebuchadnezzar would have put the focus of this passage. Are you with me? That this wasn't just written so you and I could understand about wars that haven't happened still today. But rather, this was written so Nebuchadnezzar would learn something. And if you were Nebuchadnezzar at this point in the story, you'd be a lot more concerned about that stone than you would be about the feet. In fact, church, could we get our eyes off of the feet, off of the statue and onto the stone? Could we be those not so concerned with timelines and dates as we look to the future, but rather fully convinced of the lordship and victory of Christ? Look at verse 44 and 45. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. You would not believe how much ink has been spilled over when exactly is the days of those kings. The toes kings, the feet kings, the whole thing kings. Guys, the focus is not on the statue. The focus is on the stone. Hewn without human hands. 
completely able to destroy the entire system of human power. Eyes on Christ. There's the thing, we are so concerned with the when all of this happened or might happen that we neglect falling on our face before the who, before Christ himself. This is not a timeline, although time has part of it. This is a declaration of the superiority of God to all other kings. That's what this is about. That God is superior to Nebuchadnezzar and everyone who came after him, including your favorite guy. This is about the superiority of the kingdom of God over and above all human kingdoms. So, in the time of Rome is pretty safe if we're thinking about when this is. But who is so much more important? This God of heaven that Daniel has been introducing Nebuchadnezzar to. Nebuchadnezzar, you have the pantheon, but they're all gods under the heavens. Let me introduce you to the God who set the stars, the God who is beyond heaven, the God, the boss, the Lord of heaven. The word Yahweh is not going to be used for another several chapters in Daniel because I don't know that the name of Yahweh would have meant much to Nebuchadnezzar, but we know exactly who Daniel is introducing Nebuchadnezzar to, and that is the God of of Daniel's people. That's who. Now, what is this great king going to do? He will set up a kingdom, we are told, but this will not be like other kingdoms. The kingdom of God is not just the next link in the statue. It's different. It behaves differently. It looks different. All of the earthly kingdoms have been similar. They've been sequential. They've been one after another. And there's been a rise and a fall. Rise and fall of Babylon. Rise and fall of Persia. Rise and fall of Greece. Rise and fall of Rome. There is no rise and fall of the kingdom of God. This kingdom is not just another part of the same statue. In fact, the kingdom of God is that which destroys all the other statues. In fact, it destroys the idea of statues. What it means to be a Christian, what it means to be somebody whose hope is in Jesus, is that we look at all of the power structures, all of the ways that people oppress and suppress and organize and politic and reign power over each other, and we go, yeah, but I am the, uh, in, in uh, the kingdom of the King of kings and Lord of lords who puts an end to all of these kind of power structures. The new kingdom will be a brand new kind of kingdom that Daniel's looking forward to that we know in Christ. All other kingdoms provide, prove their power by supplanting the previous kingdom, but eventually they were supplanted by another. But the kingdom of God is eternal. It is divine, no, no human hands, which means, what does it mean to be powerful in the kingdom of God? I don't even know what that means. Jesus is the only power in the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God destroys the whole system of earthly kings. So here's the difficulty. Hopefully you're thinking this. This is obviously talking about Jesus. Jesus is the one. He is the rock. 
He is the one filling the earth. That's Jesus. He's the one that, that turns all of that statue into dust that the wind blows away. But you and I sit here more than 2,000 years later and we go, but there's still earthly kings. We're still fighting about it all the time. What's going on? Why is the statue of earthly kingdoms still being built? Rise and follow this dude and rise and follow that dude all the time. Why are we not right now living in the kingdom of God? And the first Christians wondered the same thing. They looked around and had these same kind of questions, which is probably why John, when he wrote his apocalypse, what we call the book of Revelation, used code word for all of the earthly powers, and the code word he used was Babylon. Do we have time? You guys got five more minutes? Oh, you do. Where are you, where are you doing? Um, I mean, feel free to go if you want. Um, Revelation 18. Go ahead. All your friends will go, you, Daniel and Revelation? Wow, how do I go to that church? <laughs> Revelation 18 is the fall of Babylon. And I want you to see how John uses the language of Babylon to describe the whole ball of wax, all of the the idea of earthly power. Certainly he's talking about Rome because he's living under the Roman Empire. But he goes out of his way to make sure it's not just Babylon and it's not just Rome. It's the whole idea of how people in the world organize and and congregate together. Uh, Second half of verse 2. Well, verse 2. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons and a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality and the kings of the earth have committed immorality by her. Where's Babylon? All the earth, all the kings of the earth are playing by these same rules. Immorality has worked its way. There is not one kingdom that has the corner on immorality. But rather, it's ubiquitous. That's what typifies all earthly kingdoms. You go, that's not true. All right, pick one. Look at verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sin. So we are being called to be the ecclesia, the called out ones. Those who are like, do you live in Babylon? Sure do, but I'm called out. I'm not living by Babylon's rules. I'm living by this other kingdom, this other king, this other set of rules. I live by the law of love, love my neighbor, love the Lord my God. Uh, and, And that's not the rules that Babylon's playing by. Where's Babylon? It's everywhere. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven and and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back. Uh, Let's go down to, we don't have that much time. Look look at verse nine. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see smoke of her burning. So not only immorality, but also living in luxury. So basically what typifies the kingdom of Babylon, this golden head and every kingdom, earthly kingdom after it, is greed and immorality. That's not socialism or communism or capitalism. That's human greed. That's just self. That's just what happens. You can organize it a million different ways, call it whatever you want. We need to be saved from it. 
We need a different option. And that other option is Christ. Look at 11. It's not just the kings. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. It's economic collapse. So again, this is all, what is Babylon? Babylon is the way humans do life. It's every kingdom. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, and all kinds of scented woods. See, that's how to get ahead in the kingdom of man is be rich and glorious, right? If you were rich and hot, your life would be easier, right? I mean, in the kingdom of man kind of way, let's be honest. That ancient stone that Daniel's talking about crumbles all of those ideas. These are not the things that are important in the kingdom of God. There are two kingdoms set before you right now. And you get to choose. What kingdom are you building into? By what set of rules do you live your life? What success in what kingdom is your goal? Because the rock has won, but it is still growing. There is a now but not yet since built into Daniel 2. Jesus conquered. Death is defeated. After death is defeated, like immorality and greed, not that powerful. The destruction of Babylon is sure, but there is also growth. There is also a filling of the whole world that we are still in the middle of. Like a mustard seed. Like yeast being worked through dough. Now, but not yet. So what did all this mean to Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar, you aren't the great king. Neb, you didn't do this. You're fantastic, man. But this is not your future. Your future is the grave. And your kingdom's future is fall. Another kingdom coming along. So maybe, Nebuchadnezzar, you would be wise to worry less about your greatness and more about the eternal kingdom to come. And I don't want to spoil next week, but Nebuchadnezzar is going to like pretend I didn't say this this week so you can be like, <gasps> Grant Smart next week. But um, Nebuchadnezzar is going to respond to this by building a statue of gold and saying everybody should bow down to it. So we don't have like the, and thus Daniel spoketh unto him, please bow your head and close your eyes and raise your hand if you would like to ask the rock into your heart. Like, we don't have that scene. But it is pretty clear that Nebuchadnezzar is presented with a choice. Do you see the folly of earthly power? Now, Nebuchadnezzar, why don't you worry less about your greatness and more about the eternal king who is to come? So what's this mean for us? Well, it means that while the world system is big and sometimes great and sometimes scary, I mean, I, I know I, frequently I stand up here and go, don't let the news freak you out. Does the news freak you out? Only if you read it. It's terrifying. 
but it's temporary. And while the world system can be big and scary, it doesn't last forever. And we only have so much time and energy in our lives, and we can either spend it building our little part of the statue, the little, the little combs, like, I don't know what metal would be like, Bondo, maybe? <laughs> little, little pinky nail part. I can either try to build my kingdom, or I can spend my time submitting to the kingdom of God trying to advance my world or seeking to submit to God's. I can be worried about the rise and falls of earthly kingdoms, all the parts of the statue, or I can just be fully submitted to the kingdom of God. There's lots of application for this. You think about, well, in morality, what's right and wrong? Well, I don't know. Are you playing by Babylon's rules or are you playing by the kingdom of God? It's very different questions with what's right and wrong. As you think about how you spend your money, well, how'd you get it? Is it yours? Or are you stewarding it? It's a different question. When you think about your future and how you will be happy in the future, you want a future where you feel safe, where you're secure, where you have your needs met. What's the, what's the best path to that? Is it you building your kingdom? Or is it submission to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and let him worry about that stuff? You have your choice of kingdoms. And it's up to you. Do you want to live for the kingdom of an earthly king? Do you think you're the earthly king that you're living for? Or do we fall down at the feet of Jesus and recognize his power that destroys all of this other kind of power structure stuff and draws us into a relationship where we can experience love and joy and peace? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for the, the chance to consider this incredibly intense day that Nebuchadnezzar had. Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom to not be foolish. Help us see clearly the choice that we have to follow ourselves, to follow our hearts, to follow men, or to follow you and you alone. Lord, if there's somebody in the room that needs to make a decision to stop following themselves or to stop following um, somebody on earth and rather go, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ and Christ alone. I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm not going to trust myself anymore. Then God, I pray that you would draw them to that. Lord, would you help us to keep our eyes off of stuff that's temporary and derivative and instead keep our eyes on you, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, as we walk with you, we anticipate peace. We anticipate being happier. We anticipate joy. Not that the world would be perfect, but that you would be with us and care for us. Lord, help us to spread that kind of message, that kind of kingdom. Love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.